Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Bathsheba Dumuth, Dean's Associate Professor of History and Environment and Society at Brown University. Bathsheba is the author of Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, and I cannot recommend this book enough. The book explores the ecosystems, peoples, and economic systems of a fascinating part of the world and sheds light on how the interactions between indigenous people and colonial settlers affected every aspect of life for people, wildlife, the environment, and more. In today's conversation, I'll ask Bathsheba to share some stories from the book that include the history of whaling, reindeer herding, gold mining, and so much more. Stay with us. Bathsheba Duth from Brown University. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. It's so good to be here. We are so thrilled to have you. Um, We're going to talk today about your amazing book, uh, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait, on today's episode. But before we dig in, we always ask our guests how they got interested working on environmental issues in the first place, whether your interests kind of sprung up early in life or later. So we're curious what steered you into this line of work. So... My path into writing about energy is, um, it it might be a particularly circuitous one. It started when I was 18, and I did not know what I wanted to study in college, and thought it was an awfully big commitment of time and money to just go spend four years when I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took um, what we would now call a gap year, but wasn't remotely that institutionalized, and moved to a little indigenous village in the Canadian Arctic called Old Crow. And my job there was to train a sled dog team, about which I knew nothing, um, less than nothing, if that's possible. Um, And it was in the course of what ended up being several years that I spent in Old Crow training dogs and, and living with folks. And I think, as I say in the introduction to the book, learning how not to die, um, that the, the kind of ways in which people and their ecosystems interact with each other became a lifelong preoccupation. Um, So I was not thinking in terms of energy at the time, um, but it is that experience that led me to graduate school. And it was in graduate school that the the sort of thinking about energy and environmental issues really kind of coalesced for me. Wow, that's fascinating. So Bathsheba, as I mentioned, your 2019 book, Floating Coast, is an environmental history of a place that you call Beringia. So um, we're going to talk about Beringia in our conversation today. Can you help us get started by just situating us geographically? Like where in the world are we talking about? Yes. So it's not a part of the world that many of your listeners probably wake up in the morning thinking of, um, but it refers to this region in the very far northeast of Russia and far northwest of Alaska, basically where the Eurasian continent and the North American continent almost meet right at the Bering Strait. Um, and it's from the Bering Strait that Beringia becomes the name. And it's kind of a ecologically and geologically similar region, basically from the Kolyma River, which is in Russia, to the Mackenzie River, which is in Canada. Yeah. And you've spent a lot of time on both sides of the border, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And we're going to, I think most of the questions I'm going to ask you are kind of US focused because we're a US based podcast, but we definitely refer listeners to read the book because there's a ton of amazing stuff on the Russian side as well. So um, the first uh, kind of section of the book and the first couple of things I'd love to ask you about is uh, about whales and whaling. 
you know, there's this amazing section that talks about how whalers, you know, ended up sailing all the way from Massachusetts uh, down around the tip of South America and up to Beringia uh, to look for whales. Um, there's also a great discussion about how their hunting techniques differed from those that Beringian people had used for hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. So I'm wondering if you could just talk us through some of those differences and some of that history to give us all a flavor for it. So, um, Whales, and particularly bowhead whales, have been critical to people living around the Bering Strait, the indigenous peoples that live there for for thousands of years. There are whale bone sites that go back um, several thousand years at least, and probably further. And they're really important because bowhead whales are animals that people are able to hunt if you have the skill. It's, it's quite difficult because they can weigh up to, you know, 100 tons, so they're substantial animals. Um, but they have an enormous amount of fat and meat. So in the kind of Arctic and subarctic ecosystems, they've been really critical to people for a very, very long time. And critical kind of at that basic caloric level, but also critical in all sorts of cultural and spiritual ways for, for Yupik and Inupiaq communities. And that mode of whaling, which um, generally speaking, killed maybe 100 whales a year out of a population that's well over 20,000 bowheads, um, it's kind of the norm for human whale relationships in this part of the world in the kind of long span of history. And it changes pretty dramatically. Um, the way that bowheads are interacting with people changes um, around 1848, which is when the first of these ships from Massachusetts makes its way all the way to Beringia. And these whalers are making that incredibly long, often very dangerous voyage because they're interested in killing whales, not for food, not for fuel, the way that they're used traditionally around the Bering Strait, they're interested in whale oil uh, as a commodity. Um, so if you've ever read Moby Dick, you probably have some sense of what whaling looks like um, and the, the kind of gore of it and the smell of it and the danger of it. Um, it's a pretty intense job. And these whaling crews had killed out the whale populations that were closer to home, essentially. So by the 1840s, they're driven all the way north through the Pacific up to the Bering Strait um, to try to kill basically as many whales as they could um, to bring the, the whale oil back to market. Yeah. And and how did those, you know, some of those activities affect like the, the ecosystem and the, the population of bowheads in, in the region? The, the whaling history has kind of two phases um, is my sense from from the historical record. And the, the first is right after 1848, uh, the first whale ship goes back to Hawaii um, at the end of the whaling season and writes about how amazing the whaling is up in the Bering Strait. So the next year, there's a, a big rush. There's kind of a, I think of it as the first um, Arctic oil rush in some ways. Um, hundreds of whale ships come north over the next couple of years and find it very easy to hunt bowheads. Um, they call them docile and friendly and use all those sorts of adjectives. And then the whales actually change their behavior pretty quickly. Um, and in the early 1850s, have adapted in ways that mean they are avoiding whaling ships. And they're so effective at this, particularly at kind of using the sea ice as a protective barrier between themselves and these wooden ships that captains don't want to sail close to the sea ice that the whaling fleet actually leaves the Bering Strait for a number of years. And then they come back and by the 1860s and 1870s have figured out how to kind of sail closer to the ice. Um, and it's this period of whaling that really pushes the bowhead population 
from that 20,000 some number down to about 3,000 by the early 20th century. So it's a, it's a huge drop off. Um, and this has a whole series of social and ecological effects. Bowhead whales, like many big whale species, are really critical pieces of their ecosystems. There's this phenomenon that whale biologists talk about called the whale pump, where the activities of whales just in diving and surfacing moves nutrients through the ocean in ways that is beneficial to all the photosynthetic life that lives in the seas. So it actually makes the oceans more productive biologically. So the absence of whales changes the entire ecosystem um, at sea. And then for Yupik and Inupiaq communities that live on the coasts, the absence of whales um, is really intense, right? These are communities that are highly adapted to being able to hunt whales, find them critical nutritionally and spiritually. And the, the absence, particularly in the 1880s, um, leads to a series of famines um, and kind of general social crisis in the communities that are around the Bering Strait. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about the book I mean, I love, I love a lot of things about it, but one of the things I love is not only the descriptions you have of interactions between humans and ecosystems and, and animals, but also interactions between humans and, and other humans. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of how the whalers from the U.S. interacted with Beringians and how those interactions changed over time? And obviously, there's like a million stories here, but wondering if you could just highlight a couple for us. Yeah, it's, it's hard to pick. Um, in, in some ways, this is the the arrival of the whale ships is the first moment of really sustained ongoing exchange between um, people from outside Beringia itself um, and these Beringian communities. Many of them had been trading for a long time. So the northwest coast of Alaska had been receiving goods that were traded from the interior of Russia and crossed the Bering Strait, you know, well prior to that. So there there was a lot of knowledge about what people wanted to exchange with each other. Um which in some cases really surprised the whalers that they sort of show up and expect, you know, to be <laughs> totally foreign. And it turns out that people are like, no, actually, we want sewing needles and knives. Um, we, we, we sort of know what you're good for. So there is right away kind of a, um, a relationship of exchange between whalers and communities around the strait. And often, um, if these whaling ships wreck, which happened not infrequently, the whalers were really dependent on you know, whichever indigenous community they wrecked near. So, you know, there's a case of this uh, ship's captain named Thomas Norton, who, you know, his his ship wrecks in the ice, um, and he has to overwinter on the Russian side of the Bering Strait. And so the whalers are often, um, and talk quite directly about the incentives to to basically be good partners with Native peoples from the region, because they understand that they might be directly dependent on them, often for months and months at a time, um, if they if they wreck their ships. And that dynamic kind of by the later part of the whaling period shifts somewhat because, um, particularly in the 1880s, there's kind of a general productive crisis around the Bering Strait. There are not enough whales because of the commercial whaling. There's not enough walruses because there's also been commercial walrus hunting. This is a moment of real decline in caribou and reindeer populations. So um, animals that people ate from the interior of the continent are less available. There aren't as many ptarmigan. Basically, everything seems that it's at a low ebb. Um, and so quite a few particularly men from indigenous communities, sign on to whaling ships, um, basically as 
as hired whalers. So take their expertise that, of course, many of them have had for generations um, and use it in exchange for food and wages to kind of compensate for basically the calories that have been removed from their world by this commercial venture. Yeah. And there are some just amazing photos of people on ships, including native Bringians on ships. And um, I mean, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like back then, but but the, the photos do really um, provide a, a fascinating glimpse into into those moments. So um, again, there's so much in the book, you know, you mentioned walruses, and there are, you know, entire sections on Arctic foxes, I'd love to talk about them. But, but I'm going to jump ahead and ask you about reindeer or caribou. Um, and to start this conversation, I'd actually love it if you could read a little bit from the book from uh, page 171, uh, a section uh, that is kind of summarizing some of the interesting economic uh, issues uh, that surrounded reindeer and caribou uh, in the context that you write about. Sure. So that part starts. Yet in using reindeer to reap energy from the northern land and discipline its people, adherence to market growth and the collective plan alike embedded their economic ambitions in a world made from the wills of other species and the undulations of climate, in time that moves in cycles as much as forward. I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, that sentence and and what it tells us about the ways in which, you know, white settlers sort of arrived on the scene and how the US government in particular sought to use reindeer to kind of shape the economic present and the future of the native Alaskan people that they were interacting with. Yeah, so one of the things that was really striking to me as I was working through the archives and other kinds of sources for this book was the ways in which um, kind of government officials, people from the Bureau of Education, um, people kind of from outside of Northwestern Alaska coming in, were really concerned that the landscape did not conform to agricultural expectations. I have a, a colleague named Jen Rose Smith, who has this amazing phrase, she calls it temperate normativity, where if you come from a temperate place, and you show up in the far north, you're sort of aghast, right, that there's not there are no amber waves of grain, there are no forests, sort of all of the kind of productive things that particularly people interested in assimilating indigenous populations thought were kind of the correct economic forms are not present. And so there's a lot of hand wringing in the archives about, you know, basically, how are we going to make Yupik and Anupiak people citizens if we cannot turn them into farmers, which had sort of been the model on the Great Plains, and an incredibly violent model on the Great Plains. And so they kind of hatch this plan that if they can bring domesticated reindeer, which have been used by indigenous peoples in Eurasia for hundreds of years, if they can import them to Alaska, they can essentially use them as a form of kind of economic pedagogy to turn indigenous peoples in Alaska into sort of Jeffersonian yeoman reindeer herders, right? People who own property and participate in the market uh, through their reindeer herds. And then, you know, in a kind of set of ironies that seemed almost too good to be true as a historian, this is what the kind of U.S. idea is to basically take collectivist peoples and turn them into private property owners on the U.S. side of the Bering Strait. The Soviet Union comes in and wants to do exactly the opposite because the indigenous peoples of the interior of northeastern Russia owned private reindeer herds. 
And so coming in as stalwart Marxists, this was a real problem. They wanted to make people collectivists. So they too kind of project all of these really kind of normative dreams about how people are supposed to live and interact with a, an economy uh, through reindeer in this inverted way. And in doing so, both the United States and the Soviet Union put you know, a great deal of time and effort and resources into trying to transform people and to try to make the tundra as agricultural as possible. And it sort of doesn't work um, because reindeer and their relationship with the ecosystem that they live in are animals that fluctuate population-wise through time. So their populations will go up, and then they often crash sometimes quite dramatically, and then they will go up again. Um, which, of course, if you have very linear dreams of economic growth, is not what you want. Um, and so part of what really interested me about tracing the ways in which both the United States and the Soviet Union interacted with these animals as kind of colonial tools is that they ended up running into forces that were far beyond even, you know, the the two superpowers of the 20th century. Right. And can you give us a little bit of a sense of how, you know, that, you know, um, I don't want to, I don't know if I, if failed attempt is the right word, but certainly like not totally successful attempt um, to encourage Native Alaskans to kind of raise these herds. What were some of the ultimate effects on the people who engaged uh, in this type of new uh, herding activity. So in Alaska, the the reindeer herding experiment has kind of an interesting legacy in that the U.S. initially there's kind of this moment of real keenness on trying to use reindeer in this way, but it it does not have like a consistent um, kind of legislative or policy force behind it. Sometimes people pay attention to the reindeer and sometimes they don't. Um, and I think this opened up a lot of space for native communities to use reindeer as they saw fit. Um, so they kind of bring reindeer in um, if they were useful and could be incorporated as sort of part of other activities that were meaningful and, you know, made sense. So, you know, Reindeer herding continues. There are some folks all over Alaska who still have herds, um, but it does not turn into the kind of, you know, three million strong commercial reindeer farming of the whole state that had been the initial, um, the initial idea. Right. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, again, I'm going to skip over a whole bunch of fascinating richness that's in the book and ask you about another commodity um, that people from all over the world flocked to Alaska for, which is not oil, but gold. Um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you tell you know stories about people coming in particular to the Seward Peninsula uh, in search of gold. Can you give us a sense of some of the chaos that uh, surrounded the staking of mining claims and how... Um, mining for that gold affected the environment, the local environment, uh, in the decades that followed. Yeah, the the Nome gold rush, which is sort of the last in this series of 19th century gold rushes, um, hits this beach um, off the coast of the Seward Peninsula just almost overnight in the way that gold rushes often happen. So it goes from a place that has a mostly indigenous population in the you know low thousands to a place that has tens of thousands of people flocking in. And part of what draws the, this kind of prospector community initially is that the beach around Nome was kind of seeded with gold. The way that gold was eroding out of the mountains behind Nome and down through the creeks meant that this beach was just had 
fairly substantial flakes of gold in the sand and to quite a depth. So it was a place that with very low uh, technology tools, you could come and pan gold out of the beach very fast. And the beach, because of the ways that private property laws work in the United States around bodies of water, it couldn't be subdivided and owned and claimed in quite the way that that interior land could. So if you could get to Nome, set up a tent and have a gold pan, there was a decent chance that you could make money in that first summer. So there's a there's kind of huge rush of people, um, completely rearranges the beach. And one of the ways in which gold is processed in this period is to use mercury to access it. So that process is, can be incredibly polluting to the water and, and damaging to the people doing the work. Um, and then the, the miners kind of face this moment where they basically mined out the beach. There's only so much gold that they can, they can get to by hand. And they start looking in the creeks that are further up um, outside of Nome. And that kind of mining requires significantly more kind of technological investment. There's some that you can just pan out of the rivers, like that kind of stereotypical image of the, the gold prospector. But a lot of it needs gold dredges and investment. And so it, it's this moment where a lot of people who, are, who come north basically because they want to get money so that they can stop working for wages, which is a very fraught thing in the late 19th century. Um, people talk about being wage slaves. Um, this is a period of huge economic boom bust instability. So if you didn't you know, own your own property or your own business, you were really at the whims of, of a market that could let you go at any time. They're trying to escape that. And then many of them actually end up working for sort of large mining companies. Um, so there's, there's kind of an interesting moment, both of absolutely unbridled kind of capitalist boom, and then right on its heels, um, some of its major adherents becoming quite critical of it. Right. And and you read in the book about I, I I didn't realize this, but apparently there are like reality TV shows that currently exist that have that follow people who are mining for gold today in that same area. Is that is that right? And like, how are they mining for gold? Is it kind of still the like individual entrepreneurial system, or are these people working for large conglomerates? Or can you give us maybe a little bit of a update to the modern day? Yeah, so Alaska has kind of this whole cottage industry of reality television. Like if, if you spend very much time there at all, you'll run into somebody who, you know, is, is on the Discovery Channel or National Geographic. Um, and there's one that's specifically focused on these kind of small scale miners. Um, so they're they're not doing hard rock mining for the most part. It's It's kind of a lower tech version. And around Nome, a lot of them are actually trying to access the parts of the Nome beach that are underwater. Um, so that area of sand that is heavily seeded with gold goes out into the ocean. Um, so they're using these kind of Dr. Seuss looking contraptions um, with sort of long hoses that you can put down on the seafloor and suck the sand up and filter the gold out. Um, many of them go down in full diving rigs. So it, it's kind of a, an interesting continuation of this. Um, and it apparently the there was a real kind of uptick in this kind of mining after 2008, um, there was the price of gold went up, people's employment prospects went down. Um, and so there was there was kind of a boom in this um, kind of artisanal mining. Right. And um, just one last question on the gold mining. Um, you know, you mentioned the use of mercury in gold mining, and, and we've done podcasts where we talked about the use of mercury in gold mining in, in the Amazon in Brazil. Um, 
I, I hope there are better regulations on mining these days. Have you followed that uh, sort of issue? Are the regulations in place to be more protective of the environment today? Right. I mean, today you can't go buy, you know, large jugs of mercury and just sort of use them on the beach. Um, so that's definitely changed. It's the case, though, that usually when you're accessing gold that's more embedded in hard rock, um, which is where a lot of mining now takes place, is that it, it tends to be near deposits of other kinds of metals and pollutants. So there's often a lot of arsenic um, that comes up with gold. So one of the the discussions that's currently unfolding in Alaska is sort of as there's increasing investment and pressure on kind of green energy technologies, solar and wind, that require lots of different kinds of metals, there is going to be kind of a renewed boom in Alaska for various kinds of resources and what that will mean for waterways and people's lives um, is something that, that it's a very active discussion. I don't think there's any conclusions at the moment. Right. For sure. And I, I could ask you, too, about the pebble mine, but I won't, because that's a whole nother ball of wax. So, uh, Batsiba, just one more question, or at least one more theme I'd love to explore with you before we ask you uh, to recommend something that's on the top of your, your own reading stack, is, um, you know, the book says that it's an environmental history of the Bering Strait, and it certainly is that. Um, but it's also a really fascinating economic history. And as we've already discussed, you know, there's this recurring theme about how the United States and the Soviet Union are taking different approaches and encouraging, or in some cases, forcing uh, Beringians to adopt their preferred economic systems. So we've talked about this in terms of caribou, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more, maybe using other examples or, or diving deeper into caribou that help us understand you know, these two different approaches, and again, just how it affected people over time. Yeah, so when I, I started this project, I think, rather naively, I expected to find, you know, many points of departure, given that the United States and the Soviet Union sort of cast themselves as being such ideological opposites, um, and spend a large part of the 20th century kind of organizing geopolitical life around being polar opposites. Um, but when it comes to kind of the the process of assimilating indigenous populations, they actually have a lot in common. Um, so the idea that you need to transform people's economic lives, for example, both both states go about this. Um, the Soviet Union was more willing in the case of the far Northeast to use violence than the United States was in Alaska, like direct send in the army kind of violence. That's something that the United States, of course, does you know, with many other parts of its kind of indigenous conquest moving west across the plains. But by the time the U.S. is operating in Alaska, um, there is less of that kind of direct military conflict than there is in the in the Soviet Union. But I think that the the kind of core similarity that both states have is a desire to create people who are really similar to each other, right? They they want to create Soviet or American citizens who believe and participate in the Soviet American or American economies in kind of recognizable ways. And that set of pressures, it comes with things like compulsory education, which I think is one of the most kind of forcible transitions in both Alaska Native and Russian Native lives. And um you know, create new sets of incentives within communities, often for people to settle in particular areas rather than being nomadic or partly nomadic, um, incentives for people to move to cities because of economic opportunities. Those those dynamics actually look quite 
similar on both sides of the of the straits and you know underneath all that is a general desire to not deal with the fact that indigenous peoples in these places have sovereign claims to land the united states eventually settles um, with the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act in the 1970s, it kind of recognizes the fact that the people who had been living there prior to Europeans had a legal claim to land. And, you know, the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation um, have still not done in- anything equivalent to that. So I think it's a, you know, un- underneath this kind of process of economic assimilation is actually a kind of motive to erode or ignore or erase sovereign claims um, so that the United States or the Soviet Union could say, this land is ours. Right. That's so fascinating. And, um, you know, the the book is just really wonderful. And and I really encourage people to check it out because obviously we're just scratching the surface today, as, as we often do on this show. But again, it's called Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Straits by Bathsheba Dumuth. And Bathsheba, we'd love now to ask you to recommend something um, that you've read or you've watched or heard recently um, that's related to the environment uh, or even just tangentially related to the environment. We're not that picky. Um, but yeah, we'd love for you to share something that you think is great and you think our listeners might enjoy. So one of the books that I've most loved this year, which was just published this past Tuesday, so it is literally hot off the presses, um, is called Wolfish um, by Erica Berry. And it's kind of hard to to classify. It's a mix of history and memoir and a kind of cultural examinations of humans' relationships with wolves and kind of through that, how we understand fear and how we understand our relationship with the environment more generally. Um, it's just a, it's a wonderful read. Yeah, that's, that sounds fantastic. Um, well, great. One more time, Beth Shibadumuth from Brown University. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for writing this wonderful book and thank you for sharing it with the listeners on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.